it's pretty cool to uh, to see the the room transforming a little bit, and there'll be uh, even more next week as far as some transformations uh, happening in the in the space. And so we're excited about that, and excited that you guys have chosen to be along for the journey as uh, as we continue just to to do all that we can to to reach this and surrounding communities for the glory of God. And uh, this morning, we're going to uh, actually conclude our uh, series on the content of contentment. And uh, it seems rather unbelievable that it's been eight weeks of soft launch where we've uh, been able to learn together and, uh, and get to know each other and also get to know uh, the book of Philippians. If you've missed any of those and would like to catch up or check them out, you can obviously do that via our podcast. Um, but the series is really, as I've already mentioned, about moving through the book of Philippians. And uh, we're going to conclude it today in Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to read... Uh, the fourth chapter of Philippians. And so, yay for you. You get to follow along uh, either on the televisions or through that app. But let's go ahead and read a chapter of the Bible together. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I'm going to give a little disclaimer. I know how to say these two women's names, but for some reason I keep saying Yoda and the synth. Every time I say so, so I'm going to skip them because you're, what you're going to do is watch me be like, and it's like, I'm not going to use the brain power. So I entreat these two women, all right, to agree in the Lord. And it's because there was a disagreement. We'll talk about that. We'll unpack the chapter together in a moment. Just being real with you. Moves on and says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, the, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonable, uh, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were in, uh, indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in being in the gospel, the being of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant, a fragrant offering, 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather in this place. Much like that, that church in Philippi, to, to gather uh, in the new beginning and to, to process the journey that lies ahead. Father, we're humbled and excited that we have the opportunity to get to do this. And so we, um, we lay our lives before you. We open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. We pray that we would find contentment in you. In your precious name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. So I read uh, quite a bit, and honestly, uh, chapter 4 could be its own series in and of itself. I mean, so many verses that you've probably heard that are like, oh, wait, that sounds familiar. If you've ever been uh, in proximity to a church before, uh, you may have found some of those verses uh, familiar. So I'm going to really move through the text, hitting some of the high points and processing uh, the reality of the thread that Paul is running through Philippians as a whole. If you were here earlier, I'll mention real quick, this is a church that, uh, that Paul planted. Uh, he planted 10 years prior. And so he planted this church in Philippi. And now all of a sudden these things have transpired. And 10 years later, he's in a Roman prison and he's penning them a note. And uh, he's writing them the letter. And that's where we have this book of Philippians. And so I, uh, I was brought back to an experience that I had as a kid. And uh, we were in the Tully area. It's actually called uh, Highland, Fall, Highland Forest. So Highland Forest in the Tully area. And we were on a camp out with a bunch of friends and uh, my dad. And it was in the winter. And I believe actually even Eric may have been there as random as it is. But there was this, this hill uh, that, we, that was called Suicide Hill. All right. And uh, sounds nice, right? Yay. Sounds so pleasant. Uh, the reason why is because you have to be an imbecile to sled down it. And uh, in fact, it's an old uh, logging trail and it's too steep for vehicles to use current day. So they only used it by hand back in the day. And so now it's just this steep, ginormous rut lined by trees. And when you get to the very edge, if you lean out like this as a kid, and you, I don't know what it'd really be like now, but as a kid, you felt like you couldn't see the bottom. You know what I mean? When something's so steep, it almost feels like it bends in towards you. And so at the bottom, if you were able to, to make it all the way to the bottom, there was a jump at the end. And so we would always be excited to do, it was a part of this annual camp out that we would do. And uh, I had never made it to the bottom. Uh, because it was that type of a hill. You just start going, and then you just swerve off to the side and run into a bunch of saplings, and you're like, dear God, why did I do that? I can't feel my legs. You know, there's like blood running down your face, and you're like, I want to do it again. Uh, but the, uh, there's, there's just kind of this intense moment when you get right up there. And if you've ever uh, done anything like that, I know we all have different reactions, so it depends on how you're wired. Some of you are like, and I'm not doing that. You know, and you just walk away. And others of us are kind of like, I wonder what it'd be like if I could jump. Like, is it possible I could fly for a second before I tumble? And so there, there's this experience. Excitement. We've all experienced that, right? It's excitement. It's nervousness. Um, it's something inside where you're right on the edge. You're like, okay, 
I'm going to do this. And the, the, this first person uh, went, his name was Wayne, and he went on this sled and he shot down and he made it down and it went over the jump and flew off sideways and landed and crashed and everybody was laughing and jumping around and you're excited and you're nervous. And so I step back and the next person goes and I'm kind of waiting off to the side and kids are going down and they're just wiping out everywhere. And then what happens is the long trek up, you know, because it's so steep. It's just if you make it that far, you're like, why did we do this? And so you're kind of coming up and there's uh, inevitably some cross-country skiers that are going through uh, the the trails there. And so they're coming up along the side. They become critical in my story. Uh, and so I finally get up enough nerve because everybody's basically just talking trash to me. Like, come on, when are you going to go? What are you scared? I'm like, I'm not scared. I'm letting everyone else die first. And uh, so I finally get up there in my little plastic deathbed and, uh, and I'm, you know, pushed to the edge. I'm like, okay, okay. And this is the last time I ever remember saying this phrase, all right? This is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm telling you. But I get to the edge, and I look down, and I go, okay, I think I can. I think I can, <laughs> right? You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've ever watched The Little Train That Could, right? Have you ever read that book? If not, you had a marred childhood. But um, we can start up a counseling session afterwards if you want. But, you know, the, the little train that could, like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And so I remember saying that in my mind, like, I think I can, I think I can. And I pushed off. And I couldn't. I, I go down like, and I don't even know if I made it halfway, and I veer off, and there are two cross-country hikers with their skis, cross-country skiers. They're coming up, and so they try to get out of the way, and I clip one of their skis. I miss them, thankfully. I take a ski to the side of the head, and I take a sapling to the midsection, and I wrap around this tree. I don't even know how fast I was going. I was like, I think I can doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so the reason I, I tell you that story is because in moments of weakness, where, you, where do you derive your strength? I want to ask you that question this morning. In moments of weakness, where do you derive your strength? And the reason why I share the story and why it connects to where we're going is because whether you're a Christian in the room today or a skeptic or somewhere in between, Regardless of who you are, we all have moments of weakness, and we turn to something or someone. All of us do. You turn somewhere, to something or to someone. For me, in that moment, I turned inward, and I said, I think I can. I think I can. You know, we live in a culture that tells us you can. If you just think positive enough, if you're just cheery enough, if you just try hard enough, you can do anything. You can do anything. I think some, in some cases we're just crushing our children with that thought. So what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. You can be anything. Isn't that helpful? Like anything? So we turn inward to try to get the answer, and it's so easy to do that. Whether it's thoughts or feelings, we allow ourselves to write the narrative. Some of us in this room are feeling motivated people. And you're just like, listen, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem. Some of us are thought motivated. Like, listen, I thought this through. It's just not logical. Regardless of which part of that paradigm you fall on, you're turning inward to find your strength. You're turning inward to derive your strength. I think a disagreement is the perfect example of this. If you spend any time, uh, you know, studying the brain at all, you find. Um, 
this phrase called the reptilian response. And so it really has to do with the front of your brain, and I won't get too technical. What it really means is in moments of, uh, of, uh, of crisis, moments of difficulty, moments of disagreement, we have a reptilian response. And what that means is the front of your brain just shuts down. The learning processing part of your brain shuts off, and you have two options, fight or flight. It's called a reptilian response. So, and I'm oversimplifying it. But here's the deal. In those moments, fight or flight. So imagine this, a disagreement. You're like, oh, I love you, honey, or you're my best friend ever, okay? And all of a sudden, it's like, boom, disagreement. Brain shuts down. Am I going to fight you, or am I going to walk out? It's clear I'm the only one with this process. <laughs> He's like, no, never, never, honey. Don't, don't, don't get mad at me now. Yeah. And, and so you're faced with a moment, like fight or flight. Here's the thing that's interesting. More situations than not, in those moments, we choose to teach. We try to say, well, let me just explain what I'm trying to say. Let me just tell you what I mean. Basically, even though you're in fight or flight mode, listen to me talk. And that's why it sounds like this. And the person's like, I'm still angry. And you're like, you didn't listen. They're like, really? Yes, I did. Now listen to what I have to say. You know, and it's because the the brain literally shuts down. We're in fight or flight mode. And Paul addresses this dynamic when he talks about these women having a disagreement in the church. In verse 2, he says, listen, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. He understands that there's a, a disagreement happening, but when we look at that portion of Scripture, agree in the Lord in the original Greek, it means to have the same mind or to think the same thing. All right. So that might sound like what Paul is saying is, listen, you guys are arguing. Just stop it. Agree. Have the same mind. All right, I'm glad I helped. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, have the same mind, think the same thing. Catch this. In the Lord. In the Lord. He's directing them to something. So Paul is saying that the way to resolve relational issues or differences with other believers is to focus on Jesus. So he says, listen, even though you're having a disagreement, have the same mind in Christ. I love that we don't know the issue here. And commentators kind of argue about what the issue could potentially be. But I love that we don't know the issue because it's secondary. The issue doesn't matter. If the issue mattered, then we'd know exactly what the problem is. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the sense that they don't argue. Have you ever argued to a point where you don't remember what you're arguing about? Me neither. <laughs> now, have you ever, you don't have to, you know, be honest or anything like that, God forbid. But uh, have you ever gotten to the place, or maybe I'm the only one in the room, where you're arguing so emphatically, or you're disagreeing in the Lord. No, you're disagreeing. And all of a sudden, you're like, I'm not even sure I remember what we're mad about. Do you remember what we're mad about? And they say something like, oh, right, I remember now. <laughs> so this, this isn't a right versus wrong or a she said, she said situation. In fact, it's not even a sinful situation in the sense that if it was a sin issue of a disagreement, Paul would say, Yoda's right <laughs> or Yoda's wrong. No. <laughs> If you missed the early part of this message, you have no idea why I'm talking about Yoda. But he doesn't say right or wrong. He says, have the same mind in the Lord. And so 
I want to, to talk just for a moment to only the Christ follower in the room and to everyone else we'll re-engage in a second. But to the Christ follower in the room, because he isn't addressing a sin issue, we know this is relational. And so in moments of relational issues with other believers, where do you derive your strength? We're taught in this text to focus on Jesus. In other words, instead of looking inward and saying, I'm right, I'm not willing to lay this down. Like, I am legit right. Not an inward turn, not an offense, but focus on Jesus. How? How in the world does that happen, right? That sounds so unrealistic. Like, I'm so angry, I'm so hurt, but hold on. Praise the Lord, let's just focus on Jesus. Like, that's pretend world, it seems. But in the, in the Four Loves, a book called The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis describes friendship as shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing. When all of a sudden you look at each other and say, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. I love the way he describes friendship as this idea that you're shoulder to shoulder gazing at the same thing. And that's a perfect picture of what friendship is. Friendship is when you, when you may not even know each other, but if all of a sudden I started talking right now about how amazing the Miami Dolphins are, <laughs> it's going to be very clear who's going to stand shoulder to shoulder with me on that. And I will be alone, friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when you find commonality, when all of a sudden, if I talked about a certain issue right now, and all of a sudden two people laughed, or they both said, oh, yeah, I do that too, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you too? There's a commonality. You're shoulder to shoulder. You're gazing at the same thing. And I want to tell you, we have the most important thing in common. We have the same mind about Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is don't let division come. Instead, focus on what it is you stand shoulder to shoulder about. This disagreement is secondary to what it is that you're both gazing at, to, to the place that you're looking for hope and strength. You have Jesus in common. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, in a famous essay on friendship, he says this, Friendship doesn't ask, do you love me? So much as... It asks, do you see the same truth? Isn't that interesting? What he's basically pointing out is the reality that friends become friends because they agree. And so oftentimes, friendships are fractured because of disagreement. So if you agree on things in this plane that are up for question, that are up for debate, friendships can be lost. But when you're standing shoulder to shoulder looking at Jesus, all of a sudden it centers and roots that friendship. If you want division, focus on your differences. If you want reconciliation, focus on your common passions. It's not rocket science, right? In fact, if we take that same idea of friendship and we just apply it to the concept of marriage, it becomes more complicated, but it's still at its simplistic root. There's a moment in a, in a marriage relationship where you have the decision to say, it's you against me, or we can stand shoulder to shoulder and look to Jesus on this. And it's a decision. It's a decision that you make. There's a decision that we made, me and Meredith, when we first got married, that we weren't um, going to go to bed angry, that uh, the sun wasn't going to go down on our wrath, to use some biblical terminology. And so we said, listen, we're going to stay up. 
because I don't want there to be a root that starts to, to take root in our marriage that starts to drive us apart, that the next morning we just pretend everything's okay. And did you know that true love speaks truth? So it's a willingness to speak the truth in love. And so there have been some nights where Meredith just wouldn't admit that she was wrong. And uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm completely kidding. Uh, trust me. Oh, my gosh. Am I kidding? The, uh, there have been nights that we have stayed up till 3, 4 in the morning. Yeah. Where it's like, no, we're not going to go to bed. Like, we've got to resolve this. And there have been moments that we've said, oh, my gosh, there's a spiritual dynamic here. Like, it's like all of a sudden we're like, oh, my gosh, are we so stupid? Like, look at what it is that we're going through in life. Of course, the enemy of hell would kind of put a wedge between us relationally. And listen, if you're far from God and that sounds mystic, deal with it. The reality is we fight against spiritual things. The word of God says it. it's a reality. And, and so there's moments in our marriage, but sometimes it takes hours to be like, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous. Like, this doesn't matter. And we resolve it. And then we go to bed okay with each other. Are you angry? No, I'm not angry. I forgive you. Do you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And we move on. But it's a commitment to say we're not going to go to bed. And there, like I said, there's been some late nights. But it's the idea of saying, listen, let's stand shoulder to shoulder. And sometimes it's not spiritual. Sometimes it's legit. I was wrong. <laughs> it's like, oh, praise the Lord. No, it's really, sometimes it's being humble enough, because here's the deal. When we stand shoulder to shoulder, when you focus on Jesus, there's a humility that starts to come in when you realize that which he has done for you. And so the ability to say, you know what? I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. Not I'm taking one for the team. Not I'm categorizing this to be brought up later. Not I'm holding a fence or I'm running, uh, holding an offense or I'm running a tally. Hey, I'm not angry, but you're going to pay. Yeah, that's sin, just so you guys know, all right? So if you're tallying that, then you're breaking little chips out of this covenant that you've made before God. And so protect it. Have a willingness to say, what do we agree on? And, and listen, this is not, the idea of finding what you have in common is a universal truth. It's why there are people that are far from God that have been happily married for 50 years. I hate it when we over-spiritualize things. Where we say, listen, if you want a happy marriage, you need Jesus in the center. And the person's like, wait a second. My grandparents didn't believe in God. They had a happy marriage for 70 years. You're full of garbage. right? Because there's a universal truth here. The universal truth is when you have something in common and you're committed to love one another, you can have unity. But God says you can have unity to the fullest. So you can have a great marriage for 50 years, but are you living your marriage to the fullness with Jesus in the center and you standing shoulder to shoulder and say, listen, we're doing something eternal. So there's a difference. So I think it's so cool that Paul then says others in the church can help reconcile this. He turns to others in the next passage and, uh, and he gives this beautiful picture of biblical community. This idea of saying, listen, you can help bring them together. You can help them resolve this church. And I love that what he's, what he's put, painting a picture of is when there's an offense between one another, they can have the opportunity to stand together and focus on the gospel, the reality that Jesus is what they have in common. But there are times where it makes sense for the church, the community to lean in and say, hey, it's not cool that you guys are like against each other. 
Like, who cares who's right and wrong? It's not okay. It's fracturing the biblical community that we have. And so let's focus on what we have in common. There's moments where we speak the gospel to ourselves, and there's moments where the community speaks the gospel to each other. And that's what Paul's saying, is lean in and speak truth to one another. He moves on in verse 6, and he says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. One more time, I talk about the original text and, and Greek, and we dig deep sometimes. And, and when, when, when this text says, do not be anxious about anything, this is what it means. Do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> so profound. I love that sometimes it's just as plain as it says it, anything, anything. In moments of weakness and difficulty, sometimes unresolved issues with others, difficult situations, pain points, circumstances, you name it. We look inward, and because the answer is not inward, we become anxious. That's the reality. That's the narrative. We look inward. Inward has no answer for us. Anxiety increases. That's the reality of human life. If we allow it, anxiety will immobilize us and squeeze the joy out of us. We live in a world that wants to categorize anxiety as something and then medicate it or make it a personality uh, disorder or something like that and medicate But the reality is anxiety is as old as the word of God and Paul is referencing it to the people in Philippi and he's saying be anxious for nothing. Listen, crushing anxiety happens when we believe lies. That's it. When we believe lies, the anxiety begins to crush us. And this is a very real thing. I used to dismiss it. I used to think of anxiety as like people that like couldn't get their life together. You know, like, oh my gosh, like calm down. Why are you so high strung? But it's a real thing. Anxiety is a real issue that, that begins to build up within us because as much as I used to dismiss it, I had my first panic attack a couple years ago. And I was like, wow, I think I'm dying. Like legit, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so when you have a panic attack, when you have a real panic attack, you realize, oh, so anxiety is kind of real. <laughs> like, wow. And at that point, honestly, if a doctor came in and said, here, take these meds and just suck them down, I'd be like, because <laughs> you just want the pain to go away. You, you want the perspective to change. And, and I'm, not, I'm not taking something very complex and just marginalizing it as like, oh, anxiety, so just deal with it, like, Come on, I'm not. I'm saying it's a real thing. It's a serious thing. And it's something that Paul is coming head on with, and so therefore I'm required to go head on as well. Paul is telling you, and he's telling me, and I am telling you, worries are false prophets. They're false prophets. They're speaking lies to you. Have you ever said something to one of your kids? and you can see them get anxious, like all you have to do is, from experience, hand a cookie out to one kid, hand a cookie out to the other kid, get distracted for a second, start to put the cookies away with the third kid still in line. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, seriously? 
Like, really, this is happening? You are like, I want a cookie. Did I tell you you couldn't have a cookie for the love, right? Like, you just see the anxiety rise up in them. Why? Because in that moment, you know what they're saying? You're not a good father. You forgot about me. I don't matter. In a moment in which our anxiety increases, what we're saying to God is, you forgot about me. You're not a good father. Lies. Lies. Worries are false prophets. And listen, this is what they're prophesying, that God isn't good, that he isn't sovereign, that he's not in control. He's not. He's not in control because if he was in control, then you could be in control. That he's weak. He can't resolve this issue. And that he's absent. It's a lie. And I want to tell you right now, don't speak that over your kids. Don't look at your kids and say, oh, you, oh, you're just anxious, and I know, me too. That's a lie. It's a lie. And I'm telling you from the vantage point of a person that walked through the season of a panic attack, a seasons of panic, like it wasn't just one time. It was like, wow, like they thought I was having a legit heart attack. They couldn't figure it out. I went through a whole process, a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm being transparent with you because I want to risk a little vulnerability to create a biblical community here where I can tell you, listen, I'm not talking outside of something to say, hey, listen, you'll be all right. No, I'm talking about something that I walked through that I walked through, and my own strength wasn't enough. Anxiety makes us self-absorbed and distracts us from what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. And I can see now, hindsight's twenty twenty. when I see the trajectory that my life has been on, if, if, if the enemy could have grabbed me there, how much I would have been willing to risk in the season now. I'd have just been locked up. I'd have been locked up. So what do we do? Just calm down. Be happy. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's what it's going to be if you go internal. If you look for the answer within yourself, that's what you're going to think. Like, just can I just muster up enough strength? Like, what is my problem? Am I broken? Like, I can just be okay here. This is what you do. You speak truth at the lies. You speak truth at it. That's what Jesus did when Satan tempted him. You know, Satan tempted Jesus, and he spoke truth to him. So where do you derive your strength? I ask you one more time. Where do you derive your strength? And the reason I ask it is because you need to know the truth to speak it. You can't speak truth if you don't know it. But here's the beautiful thing of what Paul says. You're in biblical community. If you don't know the truth, you can come over and say, I'm believing this lie and this lie. Will you just give me the truth? Because I need to speak it over myself. I need to speak it over my kids. We're here. And so let me give you some truth right now. (laughs) Verse 6, as plainly as it's translated, it's in the command tense. And so the first thing you need to know about anxiety is it's sin. Isn't that amazing? It was a turning point for me when I was going through this process and, and navigating this. I was like, whoa, 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 wait. Anxiety sin? That literally what I'm saying is I can work out my situation so well that I've gotten to this place where I say I'm going to rely on myself. And when I realize I can't, I actually get anxious about the void in my life. That this is a sin issue. It flipped it right on its side for me. I was like, wait a second. Then I'm not going to go around being like, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm struggling with alcoholism, and so that's why I'm not going to do this. No, 
but it's a real thing. And when you have a real sin issue in your life, when you ha- and, and listen, I'm talking at the extreme. Worry is right at the front end, and worry is sin too, right? Jesus addresses that in Matthew. And he goes, what, the birds aren't worrying. Why are you? And so worry is the entry point to an anxiety. So if you, we're all on the spectrum here this morning. No one's, if you're like, oh, I've never had a problem with anxiety. Really, have you never worried about anything? Because if so, you have another problem. <laughs> so the entry point here is worry. And I want to tell you the same way that, you, that you're willing to say, listen, I have a problem. I have an addiction. I have an alcohol addiction. I have a pornography addiction. I have a, whatever the addiction might be. To be able to say, listen, I have an anxiety problem. And so therefore, I need good, solid, Christ-centered counseling. I need a professional to speak hope into my life to help me unravel the lies from truth. I am a raging fan of Christian counseling. To get to a place where you humble yourself and say, okay, what am I not seeing here? Because there are, there are moments in which people can speak truth, but sometimes there's past that's just heaped on the back of us that no one knows through a conversation, and they don't know the depth of the pain. But a godly Christian counselor can look and say, listen, let's navigate this. Let's unpack that. So I'm telling you this morning, this isn't about you just sucking it up and leaning in. This is about you being sensitive to the truth of the gospel and surrounding yourself with community of people that speak truth and also an opportunity to get professionals that are truth speakers into your life as well. But what can you immediately do today? Because we all face it. Maybe, maybe it does mean that some of your application is to, to find a Christian counselor or something like that. But today, immediately, when you're facing it right now, Paul talks about in verse 8 and 9. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you're searching after peace, if you're searching after contentment, it's about meditating on the things of truth. To getting in proximity to the truth of the gospel and say, God, would you just wash over me with truth? Verse 11, he goes on and uh, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Are you content with Jesus? Don't answer. Ever worry or become anxious? Everyone said yes. Why aren't you content with Jesus? That's what he's saying. And none of us in this room are exempt from that. We're all together here. This isn't like, hey, if you guys have your stuff together, then you get it. No, we all deal with worry. We all deal with some form of the life cycle towards anxiety. Why aren't you content with Jesus? Why am I not content? Why have I gotten to the place where I think sometimes maybe he's not enough? Verse 12 through 13 says this. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And uh, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he goes on and he says this, a famous verse, I can do all things through him who, who strengthens me. I, I love the verse, right? And, and I love that, um, 
that we see it all the time. I mean, we're going to the NFL right now. Like, like football season is upon us today. There's going to be games and all that. And woohoo! you'll see it plastered everywhere. Like, people will be like, I can do all things. You know, athletes like, I can do all things. For some reason, it's become a mantra of, of strength. And, and I think it's well-intentioned. I don't think that it's malicious at all. It's poor exegesis, though. It's a poor way of, of cherry-picking a scripture and pulling it out of context. Because here's the deal. Um, I can't do all things through him who strengthens me, if we're talking about it at face value. Um, I can't do ballet. I can't. I actually contemplated having a little tutu on to give you a display. You know, a little, <laughs> for the podcast, it happened, you missed it. I can't do ballet. I can't. And it's not a faith or belief issue. It's an ability issue. I cannot do it. So we have gotten a scripture, we've cherry-picked it out and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Except you can't. You can't. You cherry-picked a verse out of context and it doesn't make sense. What Paul is saying here is, listen, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And in even the difficult situations, I can find contentment because of who Jesus is. I can find strength in the midst of my difficulty. That's what the text means. It means I can focus instead of myself and my current situation. Instead, I can focus rather on Jesus and be content in the midst of it all. If my pockets are empty, it's okay because I'm facing Jesus. I'm focused on him. If my pockets are full, that's all right. It doesn't matter because Jesus is still my savior. If there's a season of difficulty, it's painful with tears running down my face, but I still know that God is good. He's going to walk me through it. You see, it's a perspective change to say, God is before me and he's worthy of my praise regardless of my situation. And so in him, I will find strength to walk through any season. You either focus on Jesus or be discontent in its simplest form. Contentment isn't found on this horizontal plane. And if you don't know that yet, you haven't tried hard enough, you'll get there. Everybody does. They get to a place where the, the banking account is you know, spilling over. I don't know what that's like, but I hear it happens to people. And, and, you know, they have all the stuff they want and they look around, I've got it all, I've got it all. Finally, I have the camp also and the boat and the cars and the, uh, the big, I've got it all. And I'm still not content. We see it all the time. These people, we, we watched Tom Brady say it a couple years back. The more I win Super Bowls, the more I realize there's still a void in my life. I guess it just means I need to win more. <laughs> yeah, try that. What do you, where do you finally get to the place? And I'm not picking on him, although I'm willing, if anyone's interested. No, I'm, just kidding. I'm just joking. I really hope the Patriots lose. Um, but uh, where do we get to a place where we finally realize, where's contentment found? It's not inward. Inward leaves me feeling worried and anxious and discontent. And so let me look out and gather, still discontent that it's literally only in the vertical plane. That when we focus on Jesus, the outflow of that is contentment in every season. Paul goes on in verses 14 through 16, he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble and the Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you, you sent 
be help for my needs once and again. Paul's talking about this church in Philippi that he planted some 10 years ago, and they were the first people to invest in him financially so that he could go and plant other churches. Paul's like, listen, I want to encourage you because from the very beginning you were not consumers, you were co-laborers. And I can't think of anything more perfect as we bring this series to an end and we focus on Jesus is to say, listen, from the very beginning, center way, this isn't about what we can accumulate for ourselves. This is about how we can be an expression to spread the gospel around this region and surrounding communities as far and wherever God may lead us. That we're co-laborers in the gospel. That this young church was in the midst of financially investing and planting other churches. And I think that's our heart. I know that's the heart of our lead team. That we would lean in and that, that we would multiply what it is that God has given us. That we would live on mission. And we have plans for that coming up. This last Thursday, the lead team gathered together and we talked about ways that we're going to put opportunities before us as soon as November to say, listen, I'm going to lean in and not live outside of myself. And everything statistics says, listen, get your feet under yourself a little bit. We've already done that. We've, we've given money to Project Rescue as a launch team. We raised $1,000 to help set women free from, uh, from sex slavery and that industry. We, we sent $1,000 out just a small group of us. We're, we're about that. When you give regularly, it's so we can respond immediately. And so I want to encourage you in that. I want to tell you I'm a little bit proud of that. In verse 17, Paul says this, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I love that. I love that he's literally saying, the same way I would, not because I'm trying to get money. That's what he's saying. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to talk about money. I don't, I don't want your money. I'm, I'm telling you there's fruit attached to living as a co-laborer rather than a consumer. And I think the reason Paul talks about that issue is he addresses relational difficulty and financial issues. They're the root of all disagreement ever, Right? Relational difficulty, communication issues. He's talking about communication issues, and then he gets right into, and let's talk about your money. <laughs> and I love it, because it, it's, the, it's the root of the issue. And so if we can center ourselves and say, listen, in every disagreement, we'll look to Jesus, and in every situation that it pulls on our, our purse straps, that we look to Jesus, and we say, will the gospel center us and direct us? That our anxiety can decrease. Because when we consume, what we're saying is, I need to take care of myself. I need to store it up. I need to store it up because if there's ever a season that God doesn't come through, I better have a bank account and be able to make it. I'm not talking about irresponsible living. Just talking about holding money too tightly. Contentment is knowing and living that Jesus is enough. So I want to give you something to consider and to discuss as we leave this place because the text requires it from us. So I ask you this question. What situation am I currently in that needs the contentment of the gospel. What situation am I currently in that needs the contentment of the gospel? Is it your marriage? Is it a situation with your kids? Is it a friend? Is, the, is, there, is it a family member? Is something fractured where you're like, I need the gospel to show up there? And, and maybe it's with another believer so you can face it the way Paul directs us to. Or maybe it's someone that's far from God where you have to look and say, okay, well, what does God do with this mess? How do I deal with this? So I want you to lean in. I want you to ask the question with your friends, with your loved ones, whatever circles you find yourself in. As we go into a time of worship in just a moment, 
want you to provide opportunity for the Holy Spirit to kind of unearth some things, because we love, I mean, even right now, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you people, some of you in this room are saying, oh, well, not that. I mean, not that. Like, I don't want, I don't want to talk about that. Like, that's years ago. Yeah. Well, I think that the Holy Spirit is faithful enough to kind of dredge it right up and throw it right in front of you and say, yeah, we're not done here. We got to deal with this. I would be given this to me. So I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment, just for the sake of distraction, so that no one's looking around. If you need to keep your eyes open and look at the ground so you're not distracted, that's fine. I want you to contemplate something. If you're in the room this morning and you've never allowed yourself to look at Jesus as the leader and Lord of your life, if you've never crossed that line of faith, I want to give you opportunity. I'm not going to make you come up or, or, or even raise your hand because I, I feel like sometimes there's moments where we respond and it's an emotional response. And I, God doesn't want an emotional response and, and it does nothing for me. God, God wants to come and meet you where you're at. And so this morning, if you want to cross that line of faith and come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it's this easy to say, Lord, would you forgive me my sins? Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? I declare today you are enough. It's that easy. It's the beginning. If you pray that prayer, I want to talk to you. Afterwards, there'll be people walking around. We'll be talking to a lot of people. I want to encourage you to stay and talk to me so you can learn the next steps. Because we have opportunity for this not to just be a moment, but to be a lifestyle. And I want to walk with you. We want to walk with you through that. For everyone else in this room, I want you to consider the situation. For some of you, you've got to lay it down. For others of you, you've got to, you've got to come forward. I know this is a unique room. We don't have an altar, but this, this is holy ground. And so as we go into worship, if you find yourself saying, listen, I want, I want somebody to pray with me right now. Me and Eric will be up front. We'd love to pray with you. Just come on up during worship and we'll pray with you. I want to provide space for God to do whatever God wants to do this morning as we respond to, to this text. One of the ways that we're going to do worship is going to be through the taking of communion together. I'm going to give you instruction uh, during the third song for that. And so, just so just a heads up, we're going to respond as worship uh, in taking the emblems of that which Christ has done for us. And the Word of God says we have to do that in a worthy manner, which means we prepare our hearts. And so this process is part of preparing your heart. Some of you have to lay some things down.